Today's sermon is from Luke chapter 14, verse 1 to 14, and I will be reading from the NIV version. Jesus at a Pharisee's house. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do you not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited? If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Before we dive back into the Word again this morning, as we continue our journey through the book of Luke, and as we've just read that passage of Scripture from Luke chapter 14, uh, I want to remind you about something that we started last week already, uh, and that is an opportunity for you to ask questions. Uh, As I said last week, one of the things that I miss about meeting in person at the church is being able to have a conversation with people afterwards. Uh, And invariably, somebody would ask a question, well, what about this, or what does the Scripture mean when it says that, or how do I interpret or apply that? Uh, And so I want to create that opportunity for you. And so we've created an email address called questions at whiterockbaptist.ca. And if you have any questions that might come out of the sermon, uh, or maybe it's a theological or doctrinal question as you've read through Scripture in your own Bible reading uh, or your own quiet times, Hey, go ahead, write a question, email it through to me. Uh, I'd love to be able to help create uh, some Q&A videos. Uh, And even if I'm not able to pull it into a video, or maybe it's just the way the question is asked, uh, I still would love to be able to help and direct you to maybe a resource, maybe a book, maybe a website, uh, maybe something that would help answer some of those questions. So if you have a question, go ahead and email it. So today, this morning, as you've just heard, we've read from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Uh, and we're continuing our journey through the book of Luke as Luke records and summarizes the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, 
And so in Luke 14, uh, in the first portion, 1 to 6, uh, there's this little interaction. And it begins in verse 1, uh, where it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Uh, now, I, I didn't go through that same experience, but I remember February of 2016, and I know some of you might even remember it, that was my candidating weekend here at White Rock Baptist Church. So I was invited to come and spend the week with the church, connect with different small groups and life groups, uh, to preach a sermon, and then on, on one night in the week to be in the church activity hall for a Q&A session uh, where people kind of asked all sorts of questions. Uh, and the reality was I was being assessed. I was being watched. Uh, you know, will Brian say something that is kind of really dodgy? <laughs> you know, or will he say something that will betray maybe a flaw of character uh, or, or maybe something incorrect in his theology? And so I'm being watched in, in what's taking place. Uh, and, and this is kind of what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is being carefully watched by the Pharisees to see, will he make a mistake? Uh, the reality is Pharisees always look for mistakes. Uh, Pharisees watch people just waiting to catch them out when they do the wrong thing. And of course, the sort of the question for us is, how often do we do that? Are we watching somebody just waiting for that slip up? Uh, it, it almost feels these days like, you know, when a leader gets up to speak, whether it's a politician or a civic leader or, or a leader in an organization, it's almost like there are always those people just waiting for them to say the wrong thing or to do the wrong thing. And so these Pharisees are carefully watching Jesus Christ for a mistake. And if you were watching or you joined us last week at the end of chapter 13, the Pharisees show this concern for Jesus. Uh, they're worried that, hey, Jesus, Herod wants to come and take you out, so maybe you need to go find safety. And immediately as we go into this next chapter, we realize that concern was a false concern. They didn't care about Jesus at all. Uh, they wanted to get rid of him. And so it was this false concern. And so they're watching, they're waiting. And of course, as they're watching and waiting, we read in verses 2 to 4, there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. So Jesus pauses. Uh, there's this person. He's got the swelling. We don't fully know what it is, but clearly there's a medical problem. There's an issue in this man's life. And so Jesus uses this as a teachable moment because he doesn't just heal. He pauses and, and he knows he's being watched. He knows the Pharisees are waiting for him to slip up. So he turns to them and he asks them the question. And Jesus asks the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Uh, 
So there's a man in need of healing. And of course, this is normal in Jesus's presence. Jesus has been moving from town to town, preaching, teaching, and healing. And of course, because Jesus is healing people, the crowds swell. People bring the sick and the lame and those in need of healing into Jesus's presence. So it's only normal. It's only natural. And here is somebody who needs help. And of course, the Pharisees know this. They're watching, they're waiting for him to slip up. And Jesus goes on to the offensive. And I love his questioning. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are only ever concerned about the law. Is the law being kept or is the law being violated? You know, the the Pharisees practice this religious legalism. And legalism always puts rules ahead of people. Uh, This is why they're watching Jesus closely. They don't care about the people. They don't care about the crowds. But they know Jesus does. They know that wherever Jesus goes, he, he seems to concern himself with people way ahead of the rules, way ahead of of the law. In fact, Jesus was not afraid to ignore the laws of men, especially when they violated the moral law of God. And so there's this law and question around healing. And of course, it's a bit of a gray area. Uh, It wasn't super common. It wasn't like every rabbi and every leader just healed all the time. So the Pharisees didn't really know how do we balance this thing called healing. It looks like work, but we're not too sure. And so when Jesus asks them the question, they remain silent. They don't really know. They don't have a category. And and so because they don't have an answer, they don't want to be exposed for the hypocrites that they are. So they remain silent. Uh, They're also silent. Because when we read through the Gospels, every time the Pharisees and the teachers of the law tried to test Jesus and tried to catch him out in his words, he would silence them with his wisdom as he spoke truth into each and every situation. And so they know they can't answer him and they just remain silent. And so Jesus heals the man and sends him on his way. And then I love that question. He heals, sends him on his way. But in verse 5, again, talking to the Pharisees, he says, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Jesus heals this man and then kind of points out the clearly logical thing that any normal, reasonable human being would do. If your child or if your animal is in trouble, you're not going to care what day it is. You're not going to care if it's the Sabbath. Good triumphs over the law of the day. Doing the right thing is clearly the logical course of action. It's clearly the right thing to do. You help. It doesn't matter whether it looks like work or not. The right thing to do is to take effort and to work anyway and to help. And so Jesus points this out. And as we kind of process these first six verses and this little interaction, we might kind of ask, well, what's the meaning? What's the application for you and I today as we read through this? 
Well, quite clearly, as we read it, we see Jesus demonstrates compassion and concern for those in need. And the immediate question for you and I is, do we display compassion and concern for those in need? Do we act with compassion and concern? And Jesus doesn't ever not help someone because they got themselves into the mess they're in. And Jesus doesn't come along and go, oh, well, you know, I'd love to help you, but you're in the hole that you dug yourself. You're in your own mess. You're on your own. No. Jesus always shows compassion and shows concern for those in need, and he helps. Sadly, too often, you and I, those of us, especially in the church, we might tend to become a little more like the Pharisees when it comes to helping. Now, we might not invoke Sabbath rules. We, we, we're not kind of that dim-witted. We know uh, that doesn't count. But we might fall back on policy. Uh, we, I'm afraid we can't help. We have a policy about that. I heard somebody once say, policies are just easy ways to say no. Can we help this widow in need? Well, no, our policy is that we have to do X and Y. Uh, well, can we help this family in need? No, our policy is we need these things in place before we can do anything. And the question is, do our rules, do our policies help or hinder? And of course, policy uh, isn't just a church thing. You know, each of us might have an office place or a work environment. Some of you watching this morning might own your own business and you have people who work for you. What policies, what rules are in place that show compassion and concern? Uh, society around us, you know, even here in British Columbia or in Canada, uh, we deal with the CRA and, and the CRA makes helping the poor more and more difficult with all these kind of policies. And of course, it's under the guidance of trying to prevent fraud, which is good and necessary. I was kind of shocked looking at the news of my own home country a couple of weeks ago in South Africa during this lockdown under the whole COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, shocked to realize that the government tried to implement rules preventing churches and charitable organizations from feeding the poor. They were trying to put policies and rules in place that stopped that. Rightfully so, the church said no. That law is not a good and moral law. We will ignore that law. We will break that law in order to care for the poor and in order to care for those in need. My friends, you and I, as we engage with this passage of Scripture and as we engage with Jesus' example, are we practicing compassion and concern for people in need? Individually, we need to do that. And corporately, we need to fight against those systemic policies, those systemic rules that are in place that prevent people getting the help they need. So that's kind of those first six verses. Compassion and concern. Jesus shows this. Jesus models this. And Jesus calls us to do the same. It's intensely practical. But I love how we move into the second part of Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. The second part, verse 7 to 14, is even more practical than the first portion. And Jesus has now healed this man, spoken to the Pharisees, and then he pauses and he kind of just looks around at this little gathering, this little dinner party that he's at. 
And in verse 7, it says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. And so Jesus looks around and and he kind of notices, wait a minute, you people are vying for positions of power. You're trying to sit up close to the host. You're exalting yourself. So he tells this parable, and it's this beautiful little parable where in summary, Jesus says, don't sit too close. Don't try and take that best seat at the party because it's going to be incredibly embarrassing if the host comes along to you and says, look, you can't sit there. The seat is reserved for somebody else. You need to move right down to the open seats at the end of the table. So rather sit at the end, have the host bring you up if need be. And the point he makes in that parable is summarized in verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then after that parable, Jesus turns to the host of this dinner party, and he addresses the host. And again, the summary conversation with this host is, if you're going to have a dinner party, Don't just invite your family and friends. Don't just invite those rich people. Uh, All they're going to do is repay in kind. They're just going to have a meal and invite you around. So where's your reward? Where's the blessing of that? No, if, if you're going to have a dinner, invite, Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Invite those who are marginalized in society. Invite those who typically are on the outskirts and not invited to things like this. Invite those who cannot repay you. Why? Well, Jesus answers in verse 14. You will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is saying, God will reward you for what you do for those who have no, have no blessing and who cannot repay you. God will reward you. You will be repaid then. So what's the, what's the meaning? What's the application of this second portion of Luke chapter 14? You know, if I, if I pause and just consider the world around us at the moment, You know, there are times when I watch the news and and I read online and see what's taking place. And and I can't help but think it, it almost feels like the world is moving towards more and more mayhem and chaos. You know, when we consider a few weeks ago the, the senseless death of George Floyd and then the, the subsequent riots and, and how those riots turned into looting and just again chaos and mayhem and, and violence. Yeah, but as I think of that that took place just south of the border, I'm reminded that actually that's taking place in many countries around the world. Over the last couple of years, we've seen this sort of thing take place all over the globe. It's almost like even when we think about war, and while we might not be in the middle of a world war, it it just feels like whenever one war in one area kind of seems to fade and, and end, thankfully, it's like it suddenly pops up somewhere else. And there's continual war, and there's continual violence, and there's continual skirmish and chaos. Uh, or not even in terms of war, just human rights and, and human right violations. 
You know, whether it's in Canada all the way through to Congo, whether it's uh, in the Amazon to Australia, it's, it's like there are these violations taking place everywhere. Uh, I would not want to oversimplify things because I think there's so many moving parts and so many subtle nuances. But I would certainly argue that I think two of the main contributors towards the chaos, towards warfare, towards violations, and and, and just towards the pain and trauma that we often see around the world around us, two of the main contributors to that and the sinfulness inherent in that would be pride and greed. Human pride and human greed. You know, we want, you and I cannot help it, we want to be noticed. We want to be respected. Our pride at the same time both says, look at me and don't tread on me. And of course, along with our pride, along with that sense of it's all about me, uh, we want to amass vast storehouses of wealth and riches. We're never happy. We're never content with what we have. We want more. John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? His response was, just a little bit more. The wealthiest man of his time, and he still felt like he didn't have enough. He just needed a little bit more. Don't for a moment believe that more will make you happy. So how do we respond if pride and greed is, is kind of the main contributor to the chaos around us, how should we as Christ followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, respond? Well, Jesus answers that for us in Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. There are two themes that if we practiced, the world would look completely different around us. And Jesus says, practice humility and practice generosity. If pride and greed are the contributors to the chaos around us, well, then surely their response is humility and generosity. Let's consider humility briefly. You know, pride is considered one of the seven deadly sins, perhaps even the primary one over all the others. After all, it was pride that led to Satan's downfall because he wanted to set himself up as God. Yeah, the, the dictionary defines pride as a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in conduct. Pride is thinking more highly of oneself than is valid. Perhaps this is why Scripture warns us of both the danger and the sinfulness of pride. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, we read, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For those who are proud, for those who are arrogant, they will be humbled. So maybe before that day comes, we need to learn to be humble now. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12, simply says, Pride leads to destruction. Humility leads to honor. Proverbs 13, verse 10, Where there is strife, there is pride. Isn't that so true? Isn't that so powerful? Where there is strife between people, typically there's pride. 
No, he hurt my feelings, and until he comes and apologizes, I won't forgive. She said something about me, and until she acknowledges that, I'm not going to interact. Where there is strife, there is pride. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, and says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. How do we overcome pride? How do we battle the sin in our lives? By being humble, by practicing humility. Humility is the appropriate response of the sinner in the presence of the holiness of God. You know, the prophet Isaiah, confronted by the glory of God in the temple, cries out, my destruction is sealed, for I am a sinful man. He understood his position in front of God, and he realized, I'm a sinful human in front of the all-eternal, holy God. And when we read through the New Testament, and this is why we're journeying through the book of Luke especially, we see Jesus as our primary example of humility. You know, Jesus, as the Son of God, as very God, took no thought of himself but lived a life of obedience and trust in God his Father. According to the Apostle Paul, Jesus humbled himself. We read this in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant. God becoming a servant? Jesus exhibited no pride or arrogance. He was gentle and humble in heart. And of course, because of that, he could warn his followers against desiring status. And he pointed out that the poor and the oppressed would be the first in his kingdom. At the same time, Jesus was humble before those he came to serve. Jesus' dignity, his greatness, is one with his willingness to accept the cross, to be executed like a common criminal in obedience to his Father. Jesus is ascribed all glory to his, sorry, he ascribed all glory to his father and lived in total dependence on his heavenly father. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He he assumes the role of servant with no loss of dignity or self-worth. And he sets forth that kind of service as the example for you and for I. The Messiah, the Lord, the teacher humbles himself. He washes people's feet. He takes on the lowest position. He ultimately gives his life as a sacrifice, dying like a common criminal on the cross. And so consequently, disciples of Jesus, you and I, we who call ourselves followers of Christ, are also summoned to this life of humility. And turning our backs on status, on security, on success. Now we need to seek opportunity to serve others instead of ourselves. Knowing ourselves to be sinners, not keeping track of our own good deeds, but seeking the good of others. In humility, serving. I would say in all seriousness, if you and I learn to practice humility in the face of pride, 
this world would be a different place. But not only humility in in response to pride, the same passage of Scripture speaks about greed and therefore the need to practice generosity. You see, greed consumes. Greed is never satisfied or satiated. We never have enough if we greedily seek to amass more and more. If we simply want to consume and seek our own satisfaction and pleasure, we will find it elusive and we will never be satisfied. Greed is never content. You know what greed is? Greed is that guy sitting on his speedboat up in a lake up in the mountains near his summer cabin. And while sitting there, he is not content and happy because he looks on over at his neighbor and sees a bigger summer cabin and a bigger boat and he wants more. Greed is never content and it is never satisfied. So how do we remove greed? With generosity. Generosity is the antidote antidote to greed. And this is why Jesus invites us to practice generosity, to give and to share with those who cannot repay us, with those who do not have. It starts all the way back in the Old Testament when God speaks to the nation of Israel and he instructs them on looking out for the poor and looking out for those who do not have. Uh, We read in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7 to 8, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. In fact, that's echoed in Leviticus chapter 25. For those who are poor, for those who do not have, don't don't be greedy, don't be tight-fisted. Give, share, don't lend with interest. Don't seek to exploit their position for your gain. And then Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 37 to 38. Do not judge, and, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Generosity comes in many forms, not just finances and commerce. As Jesus is saying in that passage, to withhold judgment and condemnation, uh, to practice forgiveness, to act generously. And in God's economy, that is rewarded with the same kind of benevolence. In fact, Jesus says, press down, shaken together and running over. Our God is a generous God, even giving himself through his son. And he calls us to act in the same way. As I said a moment ago, if the church, if disciples of Jesus Christ, if you or I practiced humility and generosity, this world would truly be a different place. It really is that simple and that practical. If we want to see and experience the kingdom of God, Instead of the anarchy and the chaos and the violence and and the pain and the heartache, uh, my friends, it begins with you and I practicing humility and generosity.
as I close off, I would say this world does not need more people who simply know what the Bible says. This world needs people who know Jesus and who do what Jesus says. This world needs real Christians, not those with academic knowledge of the Old and New Testaments of Hebrew and Greek, not those who've managed to memorize great passages of Scripture, and not those who can answer those subtle questions in little Bible studies. No, the world needs disciples of Christ who have learned from their master and who emulate their master as they go out in humility, serving the world, serving those in need, practicing humility and practicing generosity. Those who understand Micah chapter 6 verse 8, and I close with this verse this morning. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together this morning. Oh, my heavenly Father, as I read the words of Jesus, Jesus, as I listen to you speak to this crowd, I pray, help us to respond. Holy Spirit, come and move in our midst. It is so easy to point out the pain in the world. It is so easy to, to look at the chaos and the strife and to bemoan or even to weep. And yet, Jesus, you have shown us we don't need to be overcome by evil. We overcome evil with good. When we walk with humility, when we practice generosity, this is when we will experience mercy and justice. And so, Father, I pray, would you forgive us, forgive me, of those times when pride and greed have gotten in the way, when I've sought my own satisfaction and my own material gain, when I've been tight-fisted, when, Jesus, you call us to be open-handed, to be humble and generous. Help us to do this. Help us to live in accordance with your example for the sake of this world, that they would know that Jesus Christ is God. For your kingdom and glory's sake we pray. Amen. Amen.